Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. When you hear the words talk radio, what do you think? Well, that's not what the concept once was. As someone who's been in this business more years than he cares to remember, your host recalls when talk shows were discussions, where the host didn't insist on doing all the talking and people didn't talk over one another. Shows like those still exist. They are a bit rare, but it sets up our guest and the book he has authored. Talk Radio is the debut novel on Black Rose writing by Ham Martin. He takes us to Frost Pond, Maine where a transplant named Vivian Kindler is the new host of a midday talk show on WNWT Radio AM 1240, where small-town people, stories, ideas, and concerns are discussed and chatted about. Ham Martin is my guest from the Pemaquid Peninsula on the coast of Maine. Welcome aboard. Hey, thank you, Tori. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let us begin with you, because you live right in a zone that I know pretty well. Uh, I grew up in Vermont, and... My family spent quite a bit of time in the Midcoast, Maine and area, and uh, I went to school up that way. I have a sister who lives in Freeport, and uh, this place is a very familiar place to me. But what prompted you to uh, write this particular type of story? Well, I, uh, my wife and I have owned the home here in this little fishing village for... Uh, about 38 years, I think, and uh, we retired here year-round about five years ago. Uh, we raised our family in Connecticut, and uh, during the years I lived in Connecticut, I myself uh, had the fun of hosting a daily talk radio program for three hours every morning in a small town in Connecticut, a small AM station. And um, I have uh, I've been writing for about uh, 30 years uh, seriously. And uh, when you go to uh, writers conferences or workshops or read about fiction writing, one of the things they usually say is write what you know. So when you're when you're trying to think of an idea for a novel uh, and um, you're supposed to write what you know, uh, talk radio was uh, something that uh, I thought that I could handle uh, persuasively, authentically, and uh, and uh, do a good job with it. And let's uh, begin with your uh, your roots and uh, your roots into the radio business. But it always goes back before that because I remember being influenced by radio and music without even realizing it as a child growing up in a small town in Vermont. Was yeah. it the same way for you? Yes, actually. Uh, I, uh, I've never been one to uh, dwell on uh, sadness or personal uh, griefs, but I, I feel like I've always been just uh, sort of lonely. And um, as an adolescent, I probably was uh, lonely in a, in a very typical way. And uh, I was living in Orange County, New York, in Warwick, New York. Uh, over on the New Jersey border, about an hour north of New York City. And uh, so the years that I'm thinking of would have been in like uh, 1964, 65, 66. 
Uh, and uh, I had a beautiful AM radio that uh, an uncle had given me. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think uh, what you just how you describe it was sort of like a Bakelite uh, sort of off white uh, uh, in a sort of uh, maybe it would have been a sort of a gothic arch. Uh, anyway, it had an AM antenna wire that hung off the back of it. I remember I used to wind that around my finger to get better reception and lay in bed and uh, listen mostly probably to WABC in New York, uh, uh, Cousin Brucey, and uh, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to think who the guy who came on before him. But, uh, but um, I did also... I could uh, I could uh, spin that dial and pick up the clear channel stations from all across the country and you know listen to radio from Pittsburgh and Buffalo and all kinds of places. So uh, so my radio kept me company and I would have to say that I've always loved the radio. That if I had a choice between uh, keeping my radio or keeping my TV, I would I there's no question I'd keep my radio. Mm. It sounds very familiar because uh, I grew up on a farm and, of course, the radio and, of course, later the TV was important. I grew up in, I was born in 65, so it was like uh, radio was a strange little square unit that I cannot remember the name of either. I have no idea what it was, but uh, we would listen to WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont, which still exists to this day, and it is owned, it was founded by the Squire family, and uh, a young Ken Squire started working for his dad there when he was about 15, and he still owns the station. And what's amazing is one of my childhood friends, Lee Cattell, works for him, and a guy named Dana Jewell that I worked at at my first radio job in Burlington, Vermont, in, he's there too, at least I believe he still is. And... We would listen to that for the local weather, the farm reports, all of those things. And we also used to listen to the station, a couple of stations, CJAD Radio out of Montreal. There was another one. And I remember one of the things that got me was not only the news, but it was also uh, the music, especially music coming out of Canada was, it was, a, was an influence on me as uh, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan were for my older brothers. So, yeah, and I think it did the same thing for me because I'm much younger. So it was like that radio was a lifeline, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Did you, I don't know if you have happened to listen to the interview I gave to uh, North Country Public Radio in uh, Canton, New York. I attended St. Lawrence University in way upstate New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, you made me think of it because we always had a lot of kids from over around Burlington, Vermont, uh, in college there with us. And uh, there was, um, we had a small FM station that was broadcast from on the campus where I went to college. And I don't think I would have had the nerve back then to go over and uh, seek a job or much less uh, on-air position, but uh, I wish that I had. Well, it's one of those things where it was like, I never believed that I would get behind a microphone. I honestly never thought I could do it. I never thought I'd get the opportunity. And I ended up 
getting just barely out of high school in like 1983. And I was a student that wasn't very disciplined and I had horrible grades, but I got accepted to St. Joseph's College of Maine, which is in Wyndham. And yeah. they sadly don't have a communications program anymore, but uh, there was a small program when I got there. There was only like 35 kids in the freshman class and they were building an FM station and putting it on the air like a few months after we got there. And when they said that we can reach right into Portland, a big, you know, a, for us, a big city. And we were like, oh, wow. And I just, I remember thinking, this could be interesting. And I signed up and passed my tests and got on. And, you know, it, it went, it went from there. And I still don't, I still don't believe it, but it did happen. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into the business, though? I'm sorry. How did you get into the business? What finally got you in? In radio? Yes. Well, I had been the uh, first select band, which is sort of like the mayor yep. of a small town in Connecticut. And uh, one day, uh, uh, a young man, a little younger than me, who had been hosting uh, a program in Putnam, Connecticut, uh, uh, came to my house. I was self-employed uh, woodworker working at home. And uh, he came and he told me that he was giving up the job and that he had... Uh, suggested me to the owner of the station as a replacement and uh maybe they knew that i was a sucker and that i would work for low pay <laughs> just for the glamour of it right yeah <laughs> and uh so i uh i've always been in control of my time and uh, my wife has always supported every crazy thing i ever wanted to do and so uh i went down and uh and I uh, started doing it, and I really enjoyed it a great deal. But uh, I was I was uh, sort of prideful about it, and I wanted the show to be really good every day. So I ended up doing a lot of preparation for the show. So between the hours that I was on the air and the hours that I spent getting ready uh, and the hours that I probably spent napping after I got off the air, uh, it was consuming an awful lot of time for you know, like $30 a day or something. So, uh, so after about two years, I gave it up, but I, I had a great deal of fun with it and I still have a good relationship with the people at that station. And, uh, it was, you know, you know, it's uh, very exciting and being on live every day and having to vamp and, uh, and ad lib and, you know, think on your feet, uh, it's very stimulating. Yeah. And it's exciting and, it is something that you never really lose. And in this business, I mean, I started as a board op. I mean, I, you know, you start at the bottom, you, you board up, you know, baseball games, hockey games, different things. Uh, you run the board for people who come in and buy time and do shows and all of that. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I moved into news. I moved into different things. Uh, this is the closest to a talk show I've ever really gotten. And, my own feelings about the way the business has gone in recent years has made me happy to just do this. This is yeah. so much more fun. I guess one thing I must ask is, did you have a format in mind when you went in? Did you pattern it off after your predecessor, or what did you do? Uh, I think that I very much didn't pattern it after my predecessor. Uh, in the, in uh, my book that you uh, were talking about, Talk Radio, uh, 
there is a character at the beginning of the book named Fred Boyland, yes. who was uh, very much like uh, several of my predecessors on the, on the station that I was on. And uh, what they would do was they would just, uh, they would just sort of uh, open the show to people phoning in, uh, what often they call it an, having an open forum. Yep. And um, many of the same people would phone in every day, and uh, they tended to be sort of negative. Uh, they liked to listen to themselves talk, mm-hmm. and they would just talk about whatever was in the local, in the uh, daily newspaper. Uh, in, in, our, in our case, it would have been a paper from Norwich Bulletin or uh, New London, uh, the New London Day or the Hartford Current or the Boston Globe or the Providence Journal, something there in southern New England. And uh, they would just read the paper and want to talk about uh, whatever was on the front page of the paper, but mostly they wanted to sort of grouse. And I thought it was bad radio. And so uh, what I had, uh, what I thought that I had learned from um, some of the professionals in Boston who were popular was to try to set the show up uh, by doing a monologue at the beginning of the show. And uh, so let's say um, I decide that I want to talk about growing tomatoes. So I would, uh, I would. Tr- try to prepare, you know, maybe uh, eight or 10 minutes on growing tomatoes. And that way I thought uh, maybe people will, who are listening, who think that they're good at growing tomatoes will uh, phone the show. And that way I'll get some new and maybe more interesting callers. And so that requires uh, the work and preparation that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Ham Martin. He is the author of Talk Radio on Black Rose Writing. We're going to get into this particular radio station that he has created, and we'll talk more about this business of ours when we come back. You're listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical fiction imprint. Among our titles, works by Kareem El Kusa, such as The Kabbalistic Visions and Phoenician Code, Chris Fenwick's The 100th Human, and Michelle Willard Hoffer's The ABCs of Narcissism, Soaring Past Toxic Partners. Find these and other intriguing works at the Ars Metaphysica tab and all works of nonfiction and fiction at sunburypress.com. We're back, and our guest is Ham Martin. His debut novel, Talk Radio on Black Rose Writing, is having us go to Frost Pond, Maine, to a small-town radio station that I think any of us who's had any connection to the business quite likely started in, worked in, or probably drove past the listening area and heard some pretty interesting things. And, uh, Ham, we have to start with... Uh, Frost Pond. How did you create this little town in Maine? Uh, is it is it the town you live in, or is it something other? Well, uh, I live in a village called Round Pond, and uh, nobody uh, people who live here say Round Pond. They don't say Round Pond. They say Round Pond. That's right. So uh, so. Uh, the fictional town is 
not frost pound. Uh, a pound is, uh, that's a, that nomenclature is from like a lobster pound, which is where uh, lobsters are uh, wholesale bought and sold mm-hmm. uh, in every harbor in, the, in, a, in a town like this. And uh, so the um, Frost Pound, my fictional town, is uh, pretty much not this town. It is, uh, it's more like uh, some places nearby. But when you're going to live in a small town uh, year-round, as uh, my wife and I do, uh, you don't really want people thinking that uh, that they're all eventually eventually going to become uh, characters in your in your uh, books. So uh, I tried very much uh, to uh, stay away from uh, people that I know intimately here in my own town. So my characters are uh, mostly composites of uh, people. Uh, who live nearby or who could live nearby. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the difficult things for me because it's like, I try to keep people I know out of my books as well. And it's most of my, even though you're, even though they're your best material. Oh, they are. (laughs) They sure are. So what I end up doing is a lot of my characters, they kind of show up. I don't know about you, but they, sometimes they show up as a vision to me. It's like all of a sudden a character pops up and I'm like, okay, who are you? And it's like it it bounces around in my head for a while. And then all of a sudden I'll see somebody and be like, oh, she looks like that person, but I don't know that person. And then it's like all of a sudden people, you know, like little bits of people's personalities start to fill out the character. So and, and unfortunately, I do drop up into mine every now and then, but I try really hard not to. And it's 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 hard to keep yourself out, isn't it? It sounds sort of uh, precious uh, when we describe this, but it is uh, interesting when you begin to build a story and you develop uh, characters uh, who are fictional and you make notes about them so you can be consistent and remember uh, characteristics about the way they speak and their mannerisms and uh, and the way they process things. Uh, After a while, they really do take shape in your imagination and they become real and they can speak to you and uh, you sort of know what they think and what they're going to say before they say it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there, there are many ways that, uh, that uh, the story and the characters uh, uh, become real and, and uh, help the author along. Yeah. And the thing I have found too, and I've had people say this to me it's like do you have conversations with them and i'm like yes i'm interviewing them i'm listening to them talk to get more of an idea of it's the same thing how do they speak what are their mannerisms because you yeah. don't you know and and it's it's a lot of fun it, it, i've had it, it's interesting i've had at least uh, one uh, person say to me i i had one former girlfriend accuse me of sleeping with my characters <laughs> i said not quite like that. No, but um, you do get intimate with them. Uh, I guess the next question I have to ask is, uh, for talk radio, how long do you think it took for this to gestate in your mind before you maybe began making notes or doing a timeline or writing it out? What? How long do you think it, it took? I think not that long. Um, 
what I do is uh, I got sort of trained in uh, screenwriting, mm-hmm. and uh, I have written uh, uh, three times a whole uh, uh, screenplay for a uh, full-length motion picture, and I've never sold any of them. Uh, and uh, when uh, in the typical Hollywood uh, small drama, uh, like I've written, um, there's uh, certain structures to it. And uh, to just to give you an example, uh, you're supposed to introduce all of your characters, all of your principal characters, and uh, the essential conflict in the story, mm-hmm. all within the first 30 pages. Yep. Then between pages 31 and uh, 90, uh, the story sort of uh, plays out and unfolds. And between page uh, 91 and 120, uh, you uh, uh, resolve the conflict and, uh, and wrap up the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when um, so my books seem to have a, sort of a filmic uh, structure to them yeah. uh, where every scene uh, sort of has its own beginning, middle and end. And. Uh, so what I do is I, I sort of storyboard the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, once I decide, uh, once I get going, I'm trying to just fill in the uh, blank pages on sort of a graphic thing. And uh, as I get different ideas, I decide where they belong and how they become part of the story structure. Mm-hmm. So I sort of build it that way. And I do a lot of that before I really write very much. So, uh, so I guess I I will have started in earnest and maybe, you know, take a month or two or something building the story that way before I uh, sit down at the uh, computer and, you know, type real pages. Mm-hmm. And I do a similar thing. I do like a timeline of what each chapter is going to be like and. Of course, I never follow that because there's always something to add and something to pull out or something to shift around. But I try to use that as a guideline, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I guess that leads us now to talk about Vivian. And I really found this lady fascinating. Uh, She would be considered from away by native Mainers. Yes. Uh, who is she and where does she come from? I mean, it's it sounds like yeah. she was from your area, but there's something really unique about the way how it, it's like she's centered in such a unique way. And yet she's kind of adrift. You can tell us about yes. that. Well, uh, well, thank you for that. Um, so uh, everybody that lives in Maine uh, knows that uh, that expression being from away. Uh, it's really not meant to be mean, but it is meant to uh, distinguish uh, the uh, the local year-round people from the uh, either the vacationers or the people who started out as vacationers and then uh, and then settled in the area. You're still uh, it probably depends on your point of view and uh, if you want to think of yourself as being from away and not accepted. Uh, you know, you could be stuck in that status maybe forever. I, right. I, I don't like to think of myself as being from away anymore. Uh, so Vivian, um, Vivian lived in a beautiful home, and she had a, she had a husband, and uh, 
everything uh, looks great, except that, uh, you know, one day uh, the husband left and she found herself alone. And uh, she realized after a while that she hadn't done anything very interesting or productive with herself in a long time. And she was uh, listening to her uh, her fancy FM radio in her kitchen. And one day she flipped over to AM, which uh, she maybe never in her life had ever done because it was, you know, the snob in her only listened to, uh, to music on FM or uh, NPR. Yep, yep. And she found that she uh, she found herself listening to a local talk show and uh, and rather enjoying it. And after only a few days, she realized that the uh, host of the program was uh, leaving, and that there was uh, going to be an opening. So she uh, sort of uncharacteristically she uh, uh, she had no experience in radio, but she she went down and she applied for the position of uh, replacing Fred. So uh, this all happens uh, in the very first pages of the book, so I haven't uh, spoiled anything for anybody. But she, uh, so she, gets, just, uh, she gets hired on the spot. And, uh, you know, I don't remember if it was a few days hence she was supposed to show up. And uh, they just dropped her into the studio, and uh, somebody <laughs> stood behind her for a little while and showed her how all the how the, all the uh, buttons and dials worked, and uh, and uh, she had herself a talk show, and uh, she made a mess of it technically in the beginning, which I know you understand how oh, yeah. all the things that can go wrong and uh, <laughs> glaring feedback and dropped calls and uh, all the different things you can do to mess up. She did all those things, but uh, she did get the hang of it. Yeah, and, and uh, not- she found that she she loved it and that she was good at it. And, you know, today this would be absolutely, utterly unheard of that a woman with no radio experience walks in, gets a job. I mean, it was not so unusual at the beginning of my career in the mid-80s because every now and then uh, it would happen. Um, because my first full-time job was an AM station at Littleton, New Hampshire. And, you know, uh, when people left we sometimes really had to scramble to find somebody. And one evening, my owner told me, oh, we've got this local guy coming in. He doesn't know a thing about radio, but he knows music. And you are going to train him. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) And knowing that people had done similar things for me, thankfully, this fellow picked it up right away. He picked everything up right away, and he was an awesome guy to talk with, so it turned out well. But I've, I've been in some places where it didn't quite work that way. But it's, it's, what it does, too, is, is for, for a reader that doesn't know about our business, they're like, wow, that's really amazing. And uh, I think Vivian handled it pretty well. You know, she didn't get too flustered. She didn't get too angry. She didn't get upset with herself, and she didn't drop any words. You know. <laughs> well, she um, she started out with uh, with uh, um, part of her personality was that she knew she liked people and that she was interested in people, and um, she she was very conscious of being from uh, maybe a, a more urbanized, more sophisticated place. Uh, than uh, Frostbound, Maine, and she very much didn't want to <clears throat> appear to think she was uh, 
smarter or more enlightened or, or better than the local people. So that was very deliberate that she uh, that she wanted to uh, uh, portray uh, respect for the local people. Mm-hmm. But that was, I think, that was her personality or her character, anyway. And uh, so what she was uh, what she was good at was uh, listening. And so uh, she wasn't quick. Uh, she wasn't quick to offer her opinion, uh, you know, in rebuttal uh, or in response to what a caller would say. She uh, she would draw them out, and um, she she believed that everyone was interesting, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe that. And uh, and she believed that if she could keep people on the line, and if she could get them to talk about themselves, that eventually they would reveal themselves to be interesting, and that uh, the listeners would think that they were interesting, and that maybe even the caller, who maybe didn't have that. Uh, high an opinion of him or herself, that they would start to think that, well, maybe I am interesting. You know, maybe I am worthy. And uh, this woman is being awfully nice to me. And so eventually she would draw them out and um, and uh, they would reveal more and more about themselves and eventually speak to her in a way that was very open and transparent and uh, uh, you might say even confessional. So they would speak to her almost as though there was nobody else in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's the beginning of it uh, for all of us is we don't always remember it, but it's one-to-one. Radio is one-to-one communication. That was one of the first things I was had drilled into my head in school. It's not, ladies and gentlemen, it's not, hey, everybody, it's you. Yeah, exactly. That's wonderful. Well, I'm glad, we, somebody, I'm glad somebody taught you that. <laughs> well, I was taught quite a few things, and I'm thankful for sort of the initial drives that got put into our all of our heads, really. And it certainly helped all of us with our own communication skills, and it helped with our own social skills, and I had very few. And it was one of those things for me that... I became this person behind a microphone that was sort of me, but not really me. And then it was like I had to find out who I really was once they, the mic switch went off. Are you one of those people that they say has a face for radio? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not bothered by it. And the, actually, the one, the one thing I'm most relieved by as I've, as I've gotten older in this business is that when people listen to my voice, they can't tell how old I am. And so that's one yeah. thing I'm, I'm a little bit proud of that despite, you know, being, you know, being in theater, singing in a band uh, and not very well and smoking for a number of years that I still have a voice and I've managed to save it, I think. We are speaking with Ham Martin, the author of Talk Radio, and we're going to get into some of those interesting characters that Vivian speaks to and brings out in just a moment. You're listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. The mysteries of Sherry Knowlton, including her series with Detective Alexa Williams, are Sebastian Bennett's The Final Yen, works by Marika Biagio, such as The Model Spy and The Point of Vanishing, Hilary Hawk's Ashes to Song, or Love, Faith, and the Dented Bullet by Carolyn Kleinman. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypressbooks.com. 
We're back, and we're speaking with Ham Martin from his home in Round Pond, Maine. He is the author of Talk Radio on Black Rose Writing, and I was uh, tipped to this that if you are hearing an odd click or a pop every so often, it is not a technical difficulty. It is, in fact, Mr. Martin's grandfather clock. Am I right? Right. Tell us about the clock. I want to hear about this. <laughs> well, uh, my mother gave me this uh, handsome, uh, uh, very early uh, tall case clock, uh, which is the real what you're really supposed to call a grandfather clock. And uh, I'm very proud that uh, I'm glad that she uh, chose me to uh, to have the clock that was precious to her uh, because I've taken really good care of it and. Uh, it uh, it's it's uh, keeps perfect time and uh, it's working as as uh, well as as uh, when I got it about 15 years ago and uh, I hope I hope I have uh, a child that will take as good care of it. No, that's great. My my sister Susan would absolutely want to see this, <laughs> but that's 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 fantastic. And yes, for those who are wondering, if in case you've heard some odd other noises here in my home studio, my assistant producer. And my cat, Cow, has been talking to me. She's right at my feet right now, and I'm certain she'll tell me what else to ask him as we go along. <laughs> but yes, Ham, we've got Vivian, this really interesting lady who is now the host, and she is using her listening skills to draw people out. And these characters, they are the local color. Um, we've talked about uh, Fred, the previous host, who pops up now and again, but I am also really amazed at some of the characters. And yes, Vivian draws them out like George the Welder. Here is your curmudgeonly old local guy. Tell us about George. Well, I, uh, I had a friend in Connecticut uh, who became one of my very dearest friends of my life, whose uh, father was a regular caller to the talk show that I hosted in Connecticut. And, um, uh, his name, my friend's uh, father's name was George, and uh, I asked my friend permission to use uh, the name George, and I said, well, uh, your father your father uh, was kind of cranky when he used to call the talk show, <laughs> and so I'm going to, I need to make this character cranky, but uh, I'm really going to redeem him in the end of the story, and you're, re you're really going to like it, and uh, so my friend was... Uh, kind enough to uh, to uh, let me use his uh, his own dad who was by then by this time I was writing the book was uh, was dead and uh, to let me use his dad as an inspiration for a character mm -hmm. and it's so interesting that like you were saying slowly Vivian draws this grumpy old guy out and he just, I think, unconsciously starts to drop hints about who he really is, and it's kind of neat. It's, and yeah. it, it's one of those. It's like it's one of those people that they don't open, you know. And New Englanders, we are kind of like this. We don't always open up to people we don't know that well. But as, right. as soon as you get to know someone, and and you you get an idea about it, it's like you're friends for life, and that's kind of cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I love some of these other folks, like um, the the uh, JJ's mom is what she ends up being called. She's the the, the elderly lady that calls up, and um, I think every she I think has, every town unlike has. You, unlike you, she has a dog. You have a cat. <laughs> yep. 
JJ is her uh, dog, and um, uh, she is uh, she is based on um, on a caller that uh, I also had in Connecticut, who was uh, a woman who uh, everybody that listened to the radio program knew that this woman was uh, grieved by the death of her only child as a teenager, yep. and uh, she was uh, she was just. Uh, really wrecked by by that tragedy and um and it came through almost every any day of listening to her that uh uh that uh grief in her life uh came across and uh so uh she was already she had already passed and uh uh when i wrote the book and also i think i treated i i think i treated that character uh kindly mm-hmm. uh so uh you know, uh, your your best characters are going to be modeled after real people. There's there's no avoiding it. That's true. And uh, I think you just have to make a, a personal commitment to uh, try to be uh, kind and to not, uh, you know, gr- ever gratuitously hurt anybody by your stories. Mm-hmm. And there's the thing too is is like these people, all of them they make up any small town and it's interesting too, because they have so many, they have, some of them have very specific roles like Miss Scanlon, the teacher. She's a, now she's an interesting one. I liked, I (laughs) love the quirkiness of her. It's a sort of like an old hippie ish type lady in in some ways. And I, 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 I enjoyed reading her and having, getting a little of her perspective at times. So, um, so, uh, Again, it won't be a spoiler, but uh, your uh, your listeners should know that uh, we had a very main character named Brownie, a uh, cryptic uh, handle he made up for himself. Yep. He drives a big square brown truck and delivers packages to people. And so he calls himself Brownie, and he is a... Uh, He's uh, observing life and people out on the road on his delivery route, and he's composing poems uh, based on uh, things that uh, he sees and that happened to him out on the road. Yeah, and, I was going to uh, ask about him. I was like, did you have a? Did you have like the? Uh, did you have a poet? Uh, did you have people like that that just sort of called up and said, "Hey, I've written a poem. Want to hear it?" Kind of thing. Uh, no, I think I. I think this was, may have been one of my more uh, original creations. I think I completely made that part up. <laughs> okay. Nothing wrong with some fun, uh, but he was interesting. And, I, and I liked his style too. Yeah. I, I would have welcomed uh, the poems. Uh, I did have people. I think I did have people uh, phone in, uh, maybe with a story. Yep. Uh, we had a character called uh, Paul the piano tuner. Yep. That uh, that phones in with uh, several different sort of stories that are sort of like uh, people that know Maine know that uh, uh, there were recordings called Bert and I. Yes. Uh, Marshall Dodge. Marshall Dodge that were uh, fabulous and they're old uh, corny old Maine stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so some of those some of the stories of Paul the piano tuner uh, are are funny funny stories like that. And, you know, growing up in Vermont, we always have, we have the same kind of thing. We have tall tales and stuff. And Bert and I, 
Um, I was fortunate to um, get to know Tim Sample, who was uh, sort of brought up by Marshall Dodge and became a fantastic storyteller in his own right. Another gentleman I'm sure you've run across, I had the fortune of working with John McDonald for a little while in Portland, Maine. And we stayed friends after that. And John hosted a show for years on WGAN in Portland. And uh, two guys that just um, brought the down east in. You know, they sort of yeah. kept they kept what Marshall was doing alive. And it was I'm fantastic. I'm sorry that I don't know about John McDonald. Mm. Uh, I believe he's still with us. I don't. I think he's retired now. But uh, oh, he was he was fun. He was. Uh, one of the nicest people, and he he was that very laconic, that you know, with that voice, that down east voice, and he would take his time in telling those stories, and he used to say, like, um, when we're getting the water boiling before we put the lobster in, we're going to take our time and get it just right, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and uh, but no, they were um, they were two people that carried on that story, and some of these people are so like that, and. Um, that leads me actually to this is this is fun because you brought in a gentleman named Marcus who runs a restaurant and it's one of those little tie-ins where he's friends with the owners and that got interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, spoiler alert. Now, uh, Marcus, uh, uh, Kathy, the station owner's wife, yeah. uh, uh, has uh, Marcus join her in the studio, uh, and uh, they're talking about his uh, new, um, they're boosting his new farm-to-table restaurant that he's opened up, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I think, I thought it was kind of cute that uh, uh, sad character J.J.'s mom, she recognizes his voice, and uh, she, she says to Vivian, does this, uh, does this Marcus person have a beautiful head of black hair? And uh, Vivian says, yes, he does. And she said, that's, that's, that's Marky Elliott. That's Marky Elliott. He used to like, live down the street from me. Is that you, Marky? Where'd you get that name, Marcus Deloitte? He had, uh, he had gone to a cooking school and uh, reinvented himself, but uh, he, he couldn't fool JJ's mom. <laughs> and that's the thing. It's like, you know, they don't, we don't forget names, we don't forget faces and we especially don't forget voices. And it's like, Oh, um, no, uh, you know, (laughs) but you know that, and that's, that's always a fun thing. And one of the things too, about a lot of these characters, uh, you drop little details of main life into it. And you brought up being a selectman. And I was wondering how many people outside New England know what a board of selectmen actually is. And I thought that was pretty cool too. And uh, like the, the new person who is second selectman and people are calling in and this guy doesn't know one end of a wrench from another or something like that. Exactly. exactly. They're having a, the selectmen are quarreling over uh, what kind of uh, snowplow to, to buy, what kind of truck to buy for the new snowplow. Yep. And, uh, he finally has the uh, humility to uh, defer to uh, the other uh, guys on the selectmen, board of selectmen, uh, and uh, let them have their their say. He admits that he doesn't know much about that type of thing. But uh, but uh, we have a board of selectmen uh, in our town here in Maine. Yeah. And uh, it's a it's a grief to me to say that uh, 
they've given over a lot of uh, their responsibility to a paid guy that is called the town administrator. Yep. And uh, he's uh, very capable and everything, but uh, but uh, he actually uh, he sort of subtly is setting policy, and um, and nobody voted for him. And uh, so if you don't agree with him, uh, you don't even know you don't even know whose uh, point of view he's expressing, and so you don't know who to be mad at, who to vote for. Yeah. So it's sort of uh, it's sort of like the death of local government to me, but. Uh, most people just decide whether they like the guy or not. You know, uh, they don't. Uh, to me, it's uh, to me it's an important uh, issue of uh, governance and uh, that there's a, a principle involved. But uh, I may be a dinosaur. Well, it's interesting because we had selectmen growing up, and and I used to own a home in Wiscasset for a couple of years, and yeah. uh, I managed the radio station in Bath, WJTO, for a couple of years, and I was the news director. So my boss wanted local radio. He wanted local stories. And we had a lot of stories on the boards of selectmen on the various towns. And, of course, I got to hear from one of the guys on the planning board in Wiscasset about all the time about what he thought of the selectmen. <laughs> and couldn't you, uh, couldn't you do anything about those... Uh... People uh, at Red's Eats wandering into the road and stopping all the traffic going up Route 1? Actually, I think uh, they didn't talk about that quite as much. They were more concerned about the median strip that they laid down on Route 1 right before the bridge where the schooners used to be. Yeah. And they were like, I think we had an administrator there as well at this time. And I think the selectmen all generally got along well. And, and I remember, I remember them being really, you know, local guys that were really cool people and they were good people. I don't think anybody really had a negative thing to say, but they would look at the administrator with kind of the hairy eyeball at times. Yeah. And yeah, it was, and it's funny because I just, I, I, I passed up there a couple of years ago and it had been so long since I'd been there. And I thought, this little piece before I turned down all in the road to my old home is it's changed and, you know, change is the inevitable thing, but that is the thing that we talk about and we talk, and especially in a small town, you know, I wrote about it in my book live from the cafe change is that scary thing, you know, yes. and it's hard to embrace it for some people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, things, uh, things are, changing really quite slowly uh, here, <clears throat> remarkably. Um, the place is sort of built as much as it's going to be built mm -hmm. uh, where we are. Uh, but the, the demographic of the population uh, living here has changed. Uh, with the COVID, yeah. uh, more people figured out that they could work from home. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we got a lot of work from home people now. And uh, uh, we had some come up here with uh, families and uh, put their kids in school up here during uh, COVID, which was lovely to have more children around. That's cool. Uh, but we've also got more rich people, frankly. And uh, they're nice, but uh, yeah, some, of them, um, some of them think that they know better. And uh, 
and they, it would be better if they would just uh, watch and observe for a while. Well, I, I think I think we're all kind of like that. It's it's human nature. It's like when we come up, it's like we bring our experience, but it's like it takes a minute. Well, it takes sometimes it takes a year or two, or maybe even longer to sort of like adapt to your place, your new place. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like okay, does this work? Does it not? And I think that's a small town life that, you know, that's what's missing from our business, really, because of the like, for example, Kathy and her husband Austin are owning this little radio station. I mean, my first radio job was a family operation. I worked with two of the owner's sons and and his daughter. And that was kind of okay. I get that. And yeah. it's funny because over the years I've worked occasionally with those and it's the it's a dying breed. Uh you know, the mom and pop operations are dying are, are really going out. And some of our stations are going dark and some of them are just getting picked up and becoming like basically repeaters or relays. And yes, I, yeah, so uh, the station I work for in Connecticut and uh, the station that Vivian works for in Maine yeah. uh, are devoted to the uh, local programming. And uh, they know that uh, they might be able to make more money or at least make their life easier by just, uh, you know, putting the syndicated programming on the station all day. And uh, they could probably do something on Sunday morning and, you know, to, uh, to uh, make their uh, license uh, reapplication look better. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. but uh, it's, uh, it's really something when you have a, a local station that really is committed to the community. And we're seeing that, too, at times with, like, the low-power stations, too. Some of them are really making a go of it. They're in so many different places, but you see some people really trying to do it. And you see some interesting things, too, with, like, some of the college stations, like uh, WMPG in Portland. Uh, I have friends who work on that station that, that host shows, and... It's University of Southern Maine owns it, but it's it's like an honest to God uh, community station. And it, it reminds me of my college days because, you know, here's somebody coming in who's going to do music for two or three hours. And here's some people that are going to put together a talk show. And here's another music program. And people are playing the music that they like. And they're making that contact with people. So it, it, it still has its place. Well, I think one thing, too, is um, where do you see where do you see that future for community radio, for, for local radio, that kind of thing? Do you think that it's still viable 10, 15 years down the road? Do you think we're still going to all have something to do in this business? Because we're always remaking ourselves. You know, I uh, above my pay grade, uh, uh, you've uh, you finally asked me something I don't uh I don't have an opinion about, uh, I would like to, I would like to think that, uh, what Vivian is doing, uh, is viable, but I, um, I am encouraged at, uh, uh, you know, people on Substack and podcasting and blogging and, uh, and, uh, the democratization of, uh, of news and commentary that the internet is providing, that a lot of people are doing really creative things and uh, 
a lot of uh, young people are getting their information and they're getting their uh, they're getting opinion and uh, commentary and uh, uh, even uh, amusement from all kinds of uh, weird new sources on the internet, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess that's probably where it's really happening. I think so. I, I think it's it's one of those things where the airwaves are always going to have a place. And as I was saying, you remake yourself if you want to stay in this business, and I still love it. And at times I've, I'm like most people, at times I've cursed it out, and at times I've wondered why I've done this. But there's something about making a difference, and you find a place to make that difference. And yeah. that's, just, that's just how I look at it. I still love my radio. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I have earphones uh, on my radio next to my bed, and when I wake up at uh, 2 a.m., I listen to uh, inane sports talk <laughs> in, the, in the middle of the night, and uh, I find it very comforting. Well, uh, I feel like the, I know, I feel like I know the, uh, the people by their voices, uh, yeah. that, the, that they're old friends. And, uh, and, uh, so I, I, uh, I continue to love my radio. Yeah. Well, I want to ask now in the time that we have left ham, you have started working, you have a new book here and, I'm going to need you to pronounce this name. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, so, uh, uh, Tiezi's board, T-I-E-Z-Z-I, apostrophe S, Tiezi's board. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the author himself, uh, many years ago, bought a fantastic, huge mahogany board from uh, a real-life Giordano Tiezi in Meriden, Connecticut. The board I bought was four and a half feet wide and 14 feet long. Wow. And... Uh, my protagonist is a is a woodcarver in his forties who's uh, not very happy with uh, what he's made of his life, and he gets this fabulous big board, and he uh, he promises his wife and his child and uh, and Giordano Tiesi that he's going to do something wonderful with the big board, and uh, the book is what uh, what he does with it and what happens and. Uh, it's a great story, and uh, I hope people would uh, uh, would give that one a try also. Okay. Tell us about Black Rose Writing, uh, your publisher. How did you get in touch with them and, and work with them? Uh, my wife and I did research over years. Uh, anybody that's uh, written a novel that uh, isn't already famous, uh, it's, uh, it's so difficult to get published. There's so much competition, and we, yep. we, uh, we just researched and researched and researched and uh, and uh, this particular publisher Black Rose is uh, uh, is uh, not self-publishing uh, it is not uh, hybrid publishing uh, they are they do curate their list and you have to you know uh, some editor has to decide that your book is good and will sell uh, but they don't um, they don't ask any money from the author they don't ask for any commitment on how many books uh, uh, you'll buy uh, but uh, they also uh, they also don't really do very much to to help you with the marketing and distribution uh, 
But they say that even nowadays, even with a fancy New York publisher, uh, authors more and more are on their own to uh, sell books and, uh, you know, create sales. I think that's very much that's very much what we do. And uh, you, you really do have to you have to hustle. And that is what I think that's what all of us have learned. I certainly have. And uh, yeah. I hope I can bring some uh, some attention your way. Um, now, where can we get your books? Well, thank you. Uh, one of the one of the really uh, cool and legit things of uh, Black Rose is that uh, they do have a distribution of uh, my titles through Ingram, which is the uh, uh, the biggest distributor of books to bricks and mortar bookstores. So you could go in any bookstore, uh, virtually any bookstore in the United States, and ask for talk radio uh, by Ham Martin, H-A-M Martin, uh, or Tiezi's board by Ham Martin, and they would be able to order for you. But uh, almost all book sales in the United States uh, are happening uh through the online booksellers, uh, the biggest of which, of course, is Amazon. Something like 80-some percent of all books sold in the United States are sold by Amazon, which is uh, terrible that one company could have that much much influence, uh, but they do. Uh, But if you you just Google Talk Radio by Ham Martin, you know, the uh, Barnes & Noble comes up and the Target comes up and the Walmart comes up and uh, lots of other uh, digital uh, booksellers come up. And I always so, uh, you don't have to buy it at Amazon. Exactly. I always tell people uh, you can support a local bookshop through bookshop.org. Yeah. And I try to do that when I'm looking for something. Well, this has been a fast hour, and uh, Ham, I'm really thrilled to get to talk with you. This has been a blast, and I hope that we can bring some attention to talk radio and Tietzi's board and whatever else follows. Uh, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. You're, uh, it's great to have your help, and I, I wish you well, too. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, A Moment in the Sun, and Lie from the Cafe, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. Network.